At this point, you should be on the frame with a film strip title that says Oral Hygiene. Hey, it's Oral Hygiene. This is Matt. Welcome. Uh, Today we're talking about standing in the shadows of Motown. Um, And I got a guest in, Buzz Amato. He's a top flight musician. He was the band leader for Curtis Mayfield's band in the 80s. Um, He makes his own music. Um, I know for several years before Corona and all that, he'd show up twice a year in Japan playing like with the three degrees and hanging backstage with, you know, George Duke and stuff. Uh, if, if, you know, some of the jazz cats out there should, should know about the Dukey. So, um, this was actually our first conversation. You know, we worked on projects together for Gonzarific and the like, but, you know, we've always been texting and sending audio files back and forth. So this was kind of a cool chance to really get into it. Um, you know, living in Japan here, I, I don't have other musicians around me for the most part. When I do, they usually are native Japanese speakers as well. So hopefully I don't get into the weeds too much on this, but when I got the chance to do a little gear talk and a little bit of a music production dork talk, I, I take it. So I'm hoping it's kind of a fun conversation that you all like. And I mean, we, you know, we do plenty on the Funk Brothers Motown, and I mean, that should have that should appeal to anyone with taste, because let's let's face it, if you don't dig Motown, you don't have taste. But uh, have some taste, and let's get into the conversation with Buzz Amato. Welcome to Oral Hygiene. It's the podcast where we talk about educational films, caught films, off-kilter documentaries, I, I guess I'll say. So um, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying. I used to say weird documentaries, but I'm like, well, one, I want to get more filmmakers and their documentaries on. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't just be calling them weird and stuff. But uh, right. <laughs> this is Matt with me today is Bezomato. Hello. Hello. We've, we've been working in the same pool for several years now, but this is the first time we've actually uh, gotten a conversation rolling. So Yeah, or I've even met face-to-face, as it were. Yeah. I mean, the, I would say the excuse is I haven't been in the States since 2010, but hey, you've been in Japan quite a bit. so <laughs> Right, and you've never come to see me. <laughs> I've never I'm, driven the 500 miles necessary. Yeah, I'm, I'm deep in the mountains of Nagano, and yeah, they, they make me work most Friday and Saturday nights. <laughs> but uh, actually, Japan, yeah, Japan's weird. America, I just I go to tons of concerts, and um, Japan, not so many. I play in the orchestra, so there were those until COVID, and uh, I think yeah. the only one I paid for was uh, seeing Brian Wilson on the Smile tour. So oh wow. <laughs> But uh, that was cool. He tried to get the uh, audience to sing like "Row, Row, Row Your Boat," which I think he does regularly. But the Japanese oh. audience was just—they're going to have none of that. They're like, "You entertain me. We're not—we're not doing anything. <laughs> we're, we're not that. here for that." Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. Um, anyway, today's 
film is is feature length that's uh standing in the shadows of motown getting into the uh funk brothers and all that and buzz this is i, I feel like this is pretty deep in your blood where, where did motown enter your life oh oh maybe 10 or 11 years old <laughs> i'm dating myself <laughs> But yeah, right from the right from the first, I, I don't even know what the first record I heard by them, uh, by the Funk Brothers or a Motown record, but certainly, definitely by the time like the Supremes, uh, Martha Martha Reeves and the Vandellas in that era. Yeah, of course, I, I grew up. I guess you know, once I dating myself a little a little younger but uh getting older oh, these days but uh you know it was playing on the oldie station in the car all the time right it was already just baked into the the dna right um, so there actually was a phase probably junior high school you know grunge is big because i grew up you know hearing motown in the car and playing beatles records and grunge hit and all of that was like super uncool so there's a few years where i, I mostly ignored motown and then got into stacks right because it's you know it's a little oh yeah little grittier a little more of a thump there but uh yeah. you get a little older i guess and then you do start appreciating the uh a little more jazz swing because the the muscle souls or the stacks guys were a little a little more hardcore in that regard i suppose right that's where Mo where motown the funk brothers really shine because they were all jazz musicians so everything they did had a swing to it. Yeah, because I, I know I, you know, I've, I've played in a few bands, and I just remember having a drummer, very good, I, I, I pub band drummer basically, just no swing whatsoever. So I just had to write like straight rock. So huh. that was a bit of a bummer because I, I like to swing out a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, when did you, did you see this one in the theater when it came out, or? Yeah, and then I saw it once on TV okay yeah because so it's, it's it's been a minute yeah i think when it came out i was going to theater a lot maybe it must have played in athens but uh maybe 93 or something i think it was actually more like 2004 watching the film again i kept thinking 93 it just kind of felt like that and uh, yeah so, uh, huh. so, some of the interviews were from 93 because they oh, had you maybe know that's what stuck out in my head yeah because they threw in a few um a few of the interviews of, of the Funk Brothers that had already passed on and just put in some of their earlier interviews. So they did have a few with a, a 93 date on it, most certainly. But uh, yeah, the, the unfortunate legacy of this one is I also remember the DVDs going to the uh, Walmart, um, you know, $5 bins like real fast, oh. <laughs> which, was, which was a bit of a bummer. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, you know, people, people don't really know, you know, everybody that I've turned that movie on to is always just had the same reaction. I had no idea, you know, this is great. Yeah. It seemed to somehow just get a little bit under the radar in a bad way, but at the same time, you're watching the uh, reunion concert and kind of thinking, well, this is kind of just the, um, the souvenir. Anyway, that concert was the thing. <laughs> I, I still enjoyed it. Um, I remember the two standouts to me in the concert were Joan Osborne and Michelle and Giocello. Yeah, I don't know if you saw my notes, but um, when they had um, Joan Osborne doing What's Going On, and then they switched to, I think it's Ben Harper singing it, and I'm like, well, yeah. you know, Ben Harper's fine, but I, I just heard her killing it. I wanted to hear her do the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I just thought that, you know, the I, I there was something else that Ben Harper did, too. And um, 
I just remember it, it was almost like he was trying to make it too much his own without uh, I, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is like Michelle and Deji Ocello definitely made her material her own, but it still worked in that vibe. It was yeah. like he was almost trying to separate himself a little bit. Yeah, I think the one he did, Larry, uh, the Blind Boys of Alabama, he did that album, I know, which well, it was a good album, but that also might have had a little bit of uh, detachment, you know, sort right. of like, I, I guess maybe he's approaching it sort of like an actor more, more than a... Um, interpreter which which happens so yeah some people go ahead i was just gonna say some people make their uh, career off of that right you know uh, fred schneider or something yeah <laughs> uh, b-52s <laughs> right now didn't joan osborne didn't she put out an album where she um used um brokenhearted she put out two she put out one before this documentary came out where which had it was i think it was all motown songs but it had very modern uh, production. And then a few years after this, she did a few of the songs that she did in oh. this movie with a couple originals written in the same vein with more appropriate uh, production, basically. Yeah, because her performance on What Becomes of the Broken Hearted, I, I thought was really a standout. Yeah, definitely. Because, uh, yeah, once again, I, I, I think I erased the note because I felt bad about, but the first couple, yeah. I don't remember who the first few were, but... The first few, I was like, well, it's, of course, the band sounds great. The singing's like, well, it's, it's not like the, the real stuff. But yeah, once yeah. Michelle and uh, Joan show up, you're like, okay, this, this is working now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I got to, in 20, I think it was 2011, I got to go to Motown. And the thing that really shocked me the most was how small that studio is. Yeah, I mean, even the movie, you can. I mean, they're talking about it, and I'm thinking, no, well, I've been in some weird studios, you know. But uh, being in the space, um, I, I, I'm. Have you been in Sun Studios? Mm -mm. Okay, that, that's the one I've been in. Also, relatively small, um, and I guess yeah, both of them are just museums now. But uh, they're talking about dirt floor. I guess they, they got rid of that, did they, or is that still yeah. there? Okay. <laughs> I think they put some, some, you know, finally it put some wood down. But when you see how small that place is and you think about all those musicians that conglomerated in there, along with horn sections or string sections. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, most of this being done live, because, you know, you only had, at, at best, they were working with 16 track by the time they got around to, uh, Marvin Gaye. You know, yeah, the thing no, that really later. blew my mind was um, having the singer basically in the middle of the room, no no filters, no screens, just, yeah, they were talking about how you really had to get your mixing down. It's like, well, yeah, yes. the way they're doing it. <laughs> so, and that, that dates back to like the early jazz days when, you know, like recording The Love Supreme by John Coltrane or something, you you had to mix it as it was going down. Yeah, so, and I'm I'm a young and coming from the complete opposite perspective. The first time I had my hand on any studio gear, it's already like a four track, you know, cassette tape thing. And with right. digital, it's just like ridiculous. I mean, we do what we do in digital would take days. It's too many options. Yeah. I'm one of those that I like to commit as I go. Yes. Yeah. I came up through the world of tape, you know, I'll be at 24 track by then, but still that's nothing compared to today's standards. Yeah, sort of my approach is, okay, it's digital, but um, 
something I try to avoid is cut and paste. Yeah. <laughs> um, just play. I'll play it straight through. Maybe there's a splice in the middle if it's a particularly difficult thing and I want to nail it. Um, I know I've got one song when I, I was actually able to play drums for a while and I like the song, but I don't like it as much as some other people because I know how much I had to edit that drum part. <laughs> well, like it's not yeah, real editing, anymore. Editing drums can be very frustrating. But it was, you know, it was a fast beat, and I'm not, I'm not a good drummer, so it's just like I could not play that beat through the entire oh, thing, and I could know, not. I, would not. <laughs> I think I think I've only faked uh, adjusted my voice twice, so I'm definitely not a Pro Tools guy. And I, come on, Motown's certainly not into uh, any sort of that sort of thing. No. When I first met my wife, she played me. It was like a Japanese gospel CD. Oh. And, um, <laughs> and the singer, I, I don't know if she's good or bad. They'd auto-tune the thing so much. I'm like, because, you know, oh. the gospel has all the blue notes. Yeah. And none of them were there. It was like, oh, ah. I'm like, what? That's the, terrible. <laughs> no, that's supposed to be the sharp four. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, 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 the mistakes are sometimes the best part. Don't, don't wipe them out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can come up with a lot of great ideas with a simple mistake. But uh, roll, rolling back to Motown, I, for me, of course, the you know I start my first instrument was well, actually the first instrument was cello, but my second instrument was bass. Um, so in junior high, and I was like, I want to join the band. I'll come with the cello. Jamie's playing the cello, and Jamie never showed up with the cello, but I had an electric huh. bass by then. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> so James Jamerson is is the guy I'm looking at, and um. The biggest surprise, I'm, I'm not, I do play completely with a hand now because I got a fretless. So um, that's why would you play that with a pick? Um, but yeah, I always thought the hook was the ring finger. So it seems it's the index finger. Yeah. Got that wrong. Just, just a little. I mean, it's pretty amazing when you think of all that stuff being played with just one finger. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, for me, it is, I, you know, not as, as not being a bass player. Um, I would feel that, you know, I'd be using all four fingers or whatever. I tend not to get the pinky going in so much, but the first three definitely, uh, definitely get into the groove sometimes. Um, yeah, I didn't watch Bob Bebbitt's hand enough to see what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, he, he did a session at my studio once and that was, that was pretty exciting to have him there. I wasn't the producer on the session. I was the arranger, but you know, I still got to be in the room watching the track go down, just that gives you, seeing how he added to it so easily. That gives you a little more time to watch if you're producing. You to have to have your mind on forty-eight other things, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, so it might be might be good in that case. Um, I know you've played with a whole bunch of. Uh, you know, shows with a bunch of jazz cats. Uh, which other Motown folks have you have you run tracks with? Motown-wise, Bob Babbitt, Babbitt is the only person I've actually come in contact with. Um, okay. You know, I, obviously I worked with Curtis Mayfield for years, as, as you know. Right, right. Um, And then some jazz artists like Gerald Albright, Kirk Whalen, um, then some, a lot, you know, some of the Philly artists, um, Three Degrees, um, Benny King, the Shy Lights, a lot of the older R&B acts. Yeah, and then, and all of that, of course, is very impressive. I love. Well, let's see. I'm, of course, I'm going. This was going to be audio only, but this is like within you know reach of me. So, 
Ah, there you go. <laughs> 20 really uh, Philadelphia <laughs> international <laughs> albums. <laughs> so, um, no, I've seen, so of course you see, I'm impressed by those. Um, but yeah, I, some of your, I've seen some of the uh, backstage photos with uh, some of the, the major jazz cats. And of course that's like, wow. <laughs> I think I think oh, they were yeah. playing before or after you, but uh, <laughs> George Duke. Or, um, I think I have a couple with George Duke and Stanley Clark. That's what I think. I didn't. I didn't want to spit out the wrong name, basically, because uh, yeah, not... <laughs> we worked at the uh, Blue Note in Japan. Uh, they they played the night after us, so we obviously I we were still in town, so I went, and um, I actually had breakfast with George Duke the next morning which was cool. Dookie for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't sound quite right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> um, we'll edit so, that for I, I mean, they try to explain in this film, but and now I'm going to see if I can get you to explain a bit too, but what, what is the jump from playing a jazz set in a club and then going and doing a more like, you know, R&B style performance? It's not that different when it comes to the feel. Um, the main thing that's left out is the improvisational aspect. The improv becomes the parts. Oh, um, right. You know, you just like I'm sure you've known when you when you're like putting together a song and you're wor working with other musicians. Unless you've got an actual chart, note for note, written out, everybody's kind of feeling their way through it, and somebody might land on a on a line and go. Oh, that's kind of cool. Keep that. You mm -hmm. know, like, I'm sure Robert White just improvised that little pentatonic move on My Girl. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, he seems to barely care later. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, well, that's an iconic. So iconic. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's iconic. Yeah. I just, yeah, I just spat that one out, which. Right. And I woke <laughs> up. Yeah, that's what I felt just at that moment. That's how, that's how the muse works, I guess. Yeah. Um, just I, I guess this is a good time to gear talk. I, I sometimes some of my friends in Japan they find me gear talking to them and they have no clue what I'm talking about because uh, and I may not either. <laughs> no, no, but well, I, I'm going to keep it pretty um okay <laughs> pretty open here. Uh, I, I I put it several times in my notes. I'm just I'm a serious jazz bass dude, and uh, Motown I guess needs the precision thonk. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, would a jazz bass work in this stuff? Maybe it's a little too smooth or? <laughs> you know, I, I think about that even with keyboard players, and I really think it comes down to the player. Yeah, that, that's a big part of it. But um, I, I, I think it's how you, how you manage the instrument that's in your hand. Yeah, I think I get... James would have made any bass sound good. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, you, you can pick. I mean, it is the player in the end, but um, although I would, I would argue a big thing is um, hand place, like where the pickups are. Like one of the reasons I like a jazz bass, I like the sound, but also that right. I want to put my thumb on those pickups. I don't have the thumb guard. I, I think he, uh, James Jamerson has the big metal thing, which he would just kind of like, well, that's mm -hmm. where the hook comes. You just like hang right. over that metal. Yeah, hang your metal. wrist over. Yeah, so you ha that is a case where the instrument does create a bit of the technique, I suppose, because uh, you can't yeah. do that otherwise. <laughs> uh, on a on a piano, I don't have to worry about that as long as I've got eighty eight keys and they all come back after I press them down. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it's going to sound similar. You know, obviously, different pianos sound better. 
Right, right. I, I mentioned earlier, I've, I switched to fretless a few years ago, basically because I came across a real nice base of Doom Japanese copy for like a hundred bucks. I was like, I can't pass that up. <laughs> What's yeah. a base of Doom? Uh, that, that's a copy of Jaco Pistorius's base. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, oh, although well, it's, it's, mine isn't all beat up looking, but uh, it's like history guitars. But uh, a year later, I went in Tokyo and played like the, the Fender copy. I was like, well, I like mine better. <laughs> so... <laughs> So that, that made me feel good about that. Cause, uh, Didn't he just shave the frets off of his? Yeah, and then he put an epoxy in them. So um, the one difference of mine is it has like a, just a straight-up ebony fretboard, which is really nice. So hmm. I think the Fender had one of those, um, I don't know how to say it now, but uh, they can't use rosewood anymore for a fretboard. So it's like Paul Ferro or something, and it's, it's not quite the same. <laughs> right. Yeah, material makes a big difference. Yeah. Um, can, uh, so I do want to put it in your wheelhouse if you, if you just want to talk about what, what is the you know, basic Motown uh, keyboard style then. That's something I can't put my head on so much because I'm, well, I'm not a keyboard player of uh, much regard. <laughs> Out of the, I think they had three. Um, the, is the Earl guy Van Dyke's I related, past? Earl Van Dyke is the guy I related the most to because he's he's a pounder uh he's not delicate with the instrument but there's a delicacy that comes with it but he digs into those keys nice and deeply mm -hmm. um whereas hunter was very you know he was technically a great pianist and you know he could he covered a lot more ground but earl just had that um Kind of like on your Philadelphia record, if you listen to Leon Huff, another guy that just dug into the instrument. I guess it's a, that's a thing of live performance. Uh, back when I did play regularly with bands, you know, I, I remember uh, just being on Zoom or Skype or whatever with my parents last week. My mom's like, I just found guitar strings. Do you want them? I'm like, is it a complete <laughs> set? No, then it's useless because now I don't break strings much, and uh, right. I'll just change the whole set when one breaks. Whereas yeah. you know, when I when I was gigging, I had had to have all those singles because I was pummeling the crap out of my guitar. So I had a Telecaster, which I I, I I I loved it. I just wanted to you know change the game and trade in for Les Paul. But the one right. thing that really got me is I there was blood on the Telecaster. <laughs> so my that's, blood. That's got to make Telecaster. it sound better. Yeah, yeah, and it, the, like the maple violin, <laughs> right? And the maple fretboard was just like completely like I didn't, I couldn't sell it for as much as you know. Uh, I guess if a custom shop does that job to it, then you know it, it's still fully functional. Whereas mine was actually uh, nice. Telecasters are the most beat up guitars for some reason. I don't, I don't know what's up with that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you really? Yeah, see I've never. I, I'm very leery of ever walking onto a you know, into a studio or on a gig and a guitar player whips out a nice shiny um, instrument. It's, like it, it's got to have some mileage on it. Yeah, they got to age. Um, I, I just got, <clears throat> I got a, I, I finally wanted something with a Fender, so I traded for a, you know, relatively cheap Fender, but uh, I'm like, this, this guitar actually needs a couple of years to age. <laughs> I, I found I can't really enjoy a new guitar much anymore. It just it needs. I don't know if pianos, uh, of course, an electric piano, probably or a digital one. I'm sure this is not an issue. Maybe on a yeah. analog electric, it might be an issue. So yeah, like a good Rhodes. Like I have, I have a Rhodes that's pre CBS, and 
I'll never get rid of that. It sounds oh God, no. great. You know, it's it just has a different quality than you know what came afterwards. Yeah, when you played on a track for me, I was like, "Use the roads, please." <laughs> so I get that. Um, yeah, you know, I got I've, I like to I got a mini Moog, which again that ages interestingly in a cool way, you know. Yeah. So um, and also gives me the benefit of not having to know much about piano because are you play able one to keep the oscillators in tune yeah yeah well oh. interestingly i i don't i don't own a tuner <laughs> since i started my tracks well, on ipad more they've been more in standard tune but um older songs of mine um i'll throw this out um what do you have any put any credence in the uh the the 432 a pitch thing i i hear talk about it um I've never really experienced it or experimented with it. I, I, I haven't done too much, but I just noticed that the tracks I made um, without using a tuner at all, using the Moog or the, the analog uh, keyboards, right. most, when I checked, most of them actually were more in that range. I mean, not exactly, but they were closer to that than standard pitch. So when I went huh. by my ear, it did actually go to that pitch. So Interesting. <laughs> But, yeah, I've, yeah. Ne I've never experienced that. You know, it's, um, you know, and now I work so deeply in digital land. Um, I purposely, like, if I'm, if I'm having to do some kind of horns and stuff like that, I detune them, um, you know, because no, no acoustic instrument is physically in tune um, perfectly. Exactly. You know, strings are going to always be sharp. Horns are always going to be flat. Um, and you just have to make it all work, you know, as music should be is very elastic. That's right. one of the things that was great about Motown. Um, you know, you had this great cohesive sound, but it still had this elasticity about it. That might be and, a good segue into your uh, 16 track master there. <laughs> uh, you you want to hear some some of what's going on? Yeah, yeah. Just uh, you know, break it down for the people. They can uh, hear hear what you're saying uh, very directly. All right. Well, there's no mix on this. This is just all 16 tracks slammed up. So you know, we'll give you a little bit of this. Good enough for our purposes. <laughs> All right, so here you're hearing the whole... All right, so you get a little bit of idea there. That's just everything that's not mixed. So now, of course, our beloved James Jamerson. put him in relationship to uh we'll put, I, know we'll, huh? I know i've listened to the tune just that way straight through before <laughs> yeah yeah and and you know what the amazing thing is, is you can put any one part in here with with somebody else's part and it sounds perfectly fine like if we go to where um there's too many of you crying. 
brother, brother There's far too many of you dying Yeah, then you bring out like a guitar interesting the piano is about as sparse as you can possibly get um down to the point where they're really only playing like a note um simple part yeah yeah um, i can handle that one <laughs> yeah right um i could almost do that session but then the thing i really love are the the way the strings at motown sounded uh, there's gotta be a lot of bleed on that not a, not a lot they did have a separate room a little closet tracks of strings there's there's the one and here's the next one coming in higher strings and the full full section and then of course last but not least we have the vibe part This has been good days for him. Um, you get to play your vibes to have a tambourine. <laughs> yeah. Someone's playing counterpoint. Yeah. So, you know, that gives you an idea. And it's all on 16 tracks. Yeah. And that's like a day session, basically. Yeah. You know, people take months for that now. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Um, and, yeah. One thing with that album, I mean, I, I always loved that album. It was in my dad's vinyl collection. But the, when it really got me was actually, um, I think it's maybe 2001 or 2002, and they, they put out the uh, Detroit mix, which was the first mix of the album. Um, uh -huh. It's the percussion's a lot punchier. I'd say the right. bass is a little punchier. The strings are... Um, not as smoothed out so uh, the one we usually hear um, I mean the album I guess the single mix is a different story but uh, the album to me was always a little too glossy and glam sounding whereas this but this Detroit mix if, if you haven't heard it look that one up because it, it yeah, I have to. yeah I haven't heard it 
to me, that's the more proper one anyway. Um, I think Barry Gordy just got a little scared of that one because it was so different. He's like, let's, let's, you know, um, schmaltz it up a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He he didn't even want that album done, if I remember. Yeah. I I don't think him and Marvin had a very good uh, relation in the 70s. (laughs) They had some kind of bet going on with that, and I can't quite remember what it is now. And I guess Marvin won that one. (laughs) One of the few that Marvin won. (laughs) But um, I guess the thing with, even with all the music of Motown, all that, watching the film, the thing that sticks to me the most is the pig feet story. (laughs) Oh, Oh, that's in in the car or something, right? Yeah. That's the one that stuck in my mind when I watched it a few years ago and having just watched it again, just I'm like, you know, they can talk about his bass technique all, all they want. It's great. But the pig feet story, I'm like, okay, now now we get to a little, you know, that's a little more of a, the man, I guess. They reenacted, and you're like, yeah, we're going to kick this guy out in the negative 20-degree weather, of course. <laughs> I think if I remember, he's got he's to go and put his pajamas on. He right. Without his pajamas. So. And, uh, you know, I, I thought the way Motown ended was sad, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was just like, you know, <laughs> doors, we lock the door, you know, have a nice yeah. life. You show up to work one day and it's like, we're, we're not here anymore. But that's, I mean, I, I guess you got your club gig, but that's still a bit of a bummer because, uh, yeah, they do mention that some of these guys did go ahead and try and, you know, follow Motown out to LA, but it just, it wasn't the same and they weren't, that wasn't their environment. They couldn't really function in that kind of and session. Motown was never the same. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, I've got a soft spot for you know, weird electro drum '80s Motown, of course, too. But uh, it, yeah, it's definitely not the same thing. <laughs> yeah, and and I think you know, I really do think he could have transitioned those musicians out there, and also transitioned the sound into a more modern uh, arena, because. But, you know, every every group of studio musicians have their their lifespan, like the Wrecking Crew. Um, you know, it oh, just... No, uh, <laughs> no Tondo well. doesn't have a lifespan. They're still around. <laughs> yeah, well, but yeah, you know what I'm saying. The, yeah, yeah. The, the ones that really create that history, it's a moment in time. Yeah, I, I, again, I mean... This movie is about the the Funk Brothers not getting you know the recognition they deserve, and I mean even with the L.A. guys, uh, you you have to be talking to another muso for Hal Blaine to really or Carol Kay to really hit a mark, you know? Exactly. And you look at what they they did musically; it's just astounding. Because and you're like, yeah, Hal Blaine play, played on like every recording out of L.A. at that time. You're like, what? They really? did over ten thousand records. I mean, yeah. That's- that, that's amazing. And I think, Hal Blaine died penniless. Yeah, because I think he holds a record for being on the most number ones ever. <laughs> yeah, and having the most money uh, lost in a divorce suit. <laughs> well, I mean, some, some choices start, are better than others. <laughs> yeah, got to start hopping your uh, platinum records and everything. That's just sad. But uh, that's, that's, we'll save that for uh, the Wrecking Crew podcast. Right. <laughs> um, Oh man, I forgot my question. Well, okay, here's the other one I was going to come up with. Um, just just to give you a few, get a pick your brain a little bit. Um, oh, I I got it. They one other thing that really surprised me in this movie was how much you know Motown songs are not Motown because they just 
play for whoever would hire them. So yeah, because I think they did some Sam Cooke stuff. Yeah. So. So sometimes I'm not, I don't feel too bad when I kind of miss the line between uh, Motown and not Motown. I'm like, oh, it actually is the same people anyway. So <laughs> makes sense. So I was going to ask you uh, just for, for your most, if you got something that's like super underrated in your mind for Motown. Wow. You're doing what's going on. That, you know, that never is lacking in love from people, right? So <laughs> no, um, I don't know. It's, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything that would be underrated from Motown or overrated for that matter. Yeah. Uh, you know, you probably don't know this, but I'm like the hugest Stevie Wonder fan on earth. And <laughs> Most people are. <laughs> he, you know, he definitely cut his musical chops. Um, Cause I know, you know, he would talk about how he would just sit there and listen to, uh, Earl play and go, what, what are you doing there? What are you doing there? And uh, I, there, there was one line in the film where Earl said, yeah, he, he pretty much learned, learned all our stuff enough where he fired all of us. Yeah, as I was about to say, he certainly was hanging around the, the uh, drum section as well because uh, some of my favorite drumming ever is on Talking Book. So, <laughs> just, it's, I mean, it's just so, it's weird because it's, it's well recorded, but there's just absolutely no bells and whistles whatsoever to that drumming on that album, you know? And it's just, it's just tight. And that's uh, another one I have uh, the 16 track master, the superstition. I was going to say, is that superstition? Uh, I, I, I'll give that a few seconds of time. I don't even think that's in the movie, but whatever. <laughs> if you have it ready to roll. Well, I don't have it up, but it, you know, I could get it there while we're talking. Um, <laughs> You know that he did drums in, in that in uh, a couple of different passes. Right. So, um, Stevie was very, uh, very different in how he uh, did things. Obviously, like on Superstition, I could never understand why. Why every time I play this, doesn't it sound like what it should be? And then <laughs> I found out he, he's got. Out of the 16 tracks, eight of them are clavinet. And they all have their own little... Um, um, it's almost like a... Kind of like those early McCartney albums where he'd be a one-man band. I mean, Stevie right. Wonder's basically doing that. Well, you know, a few horn sections brought in, I guess. But uh, just, yeah, all he's doing with the, the synths and the clavinet is insane, too. Because, you know, the guitar parts are basically all clavinet. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I know I have it, and I don't know what file I have it under. That's cool. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to. We'll save it for another time. Okay, I, I I would assume anyone that's listening to this probably knows what superstition sounds like, and if if you don't, it's time to find out. <laughs> and, and you know, back, this is all sixteen track recording, so um, you had to make every track count. So on that one, he's got two tracks of drums. Um, and then he has two, uh, he's got eight clavinet parts, two tracks of vocals, one little simple mode bass part, two tracks of horns, and uh, I think that's it. Yeah, yeah, just uh, everything's so tight there. Um, I guess the Motown album, one well, CD I have that I listen to the most, or MP3, whatever they are now, but um, 
the the one that I listen to the most is actually the uh, Temptations psychedelic soul compilation. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean that whole that whole era was psychedelic shack and uh, Cloud Nine. Uh, that was a great period for Motown because that, that's where you could hear them changing. Right. And they kind of go over that a little bit in the documentary, which is, it's cool to see where that change happened. Cause you know, they obviously you can't really get away with doing so much of my girl by 1969. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, um, you know, th everything had much, uh, much more of an edge to it by then and sounds were being explored more. You know, I don't know if if Stevie hadn't come along. I don't know if any if Joe Hunter or Earl or any of those guys would have embraced synthesizers or not. <laughs> right. That would be interesting because it's it's always unique when a you know it's like a piano player and somebody says, "Well, just play organ." It's like, well, it's a different instrument. You don't play it the same way. So it'd be interesting to see how they would have approached something like that, or if they would have. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess that's the. I guess that's part of the charm of a mini Moog, though. It's just you know, you just throw your hand somewhere else and get a wildly different sound while you're still playing keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't do that at all, but uh, you know, <laughs> a keyboard player can, of course. Back back in the day, I, I had a mini Moog, and I used to have to. You know, you, you didn't have presets. You had to turn those knobs. So I'd be playing my Rhodes part with one hand and turning the knobs with the other. And you didn't always know what you were going to land on. And yeah, I do. I often tell people I don't know how to play keyboard, but I do know how to program a synthesizer. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a great um, skill to have because that's something I can't do. Yeah. I turn knobs until I go... I can live with that. Yeah, well, sometimes you, it's worth, you know, especially if you're on a mini mode that some of the newer ones have, I mean, still analog, but there's some basic presets, which is really nice. But uh, <laughs> it can be a starting point for your sound. Right, right. I mean, I never, I try to never just use a straight preset because I'm like, well, that's, you know, I hear, I, I think uh, my wife was listening to the, uh, Black Eyed Peas or something several years ago, and I'm like, oh, that's microchord preset, blah blah. <laughs> there was a time, especially in the '90s, where you could tell every synth that was being used. Oh, that that's a uh, Roland D50, or uh, that's a Korg M1. You know, um, nowadays it's a little tougher because you have so many emulations and you have so many different off-brand synthesizers and things. Um, but yeah. the, I mean, the convenience is nice. Um, I by my feet here is a um a, a tube amplifier, but for the past year and a half, I've pretty much just been playing through my iPad and, uh, and using those amplifiers. Um, five years ago, they didn't sound very good, but now it's not. In some ways, they sound a little better, to be honest. <laughs> the only the only thing I miss about that, um. And, and I had a producer come to the studio one time and he, he asked me if, uh, if I knew a guitar player that could come in and play real high energy. And I was like, sure. So I had this guy come in and he comes in and he, he brings a few guitars and two amps. And he's like, well, what, what is he doing with the amps? And I was like, he's going to play through them. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. I do everything in, in, the, in the box here. And he's like, I was like, well, 
you know, he, and he had no clue even how to mic them. So uh, we mic'd them up for him. He, he could not, he was like, why does this sound so much better than my uh, emulations? And I was like, cause he's moving air. You know, yeah. and that's, that's the bottom line is that, that air moving around just disperses those molecules, sound molecules all over the place. I guess that would be the flip side. While I'm not moving air anymore with most of my guitar recordings, um, I have probably because my wife is still teleworking. Well, actually, she's at work today, but that's rare. But um, I've been recording like vocals and percussion, like in the middle of rice fields. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, you know, like there's one, it sounds like I'm putting some cheesy bird effect into one of my songs. So I'm like, no, I'm just outside and there's birds there. <laughs> so, so you do everything on the iPad. Pretty much these days, yeah. I'll I'll do other recordings on the iPad. I'll move them over to my laptop because you know there's a lot more options on my software on here. But um, yeah, the iPad. I'll take it out and I've been doing like even even when I'm doing the um, direct mic'd or direct lined guitar parts, I, I've I've been out midnight in rice fields playing guitar too. So the air is not there, but the, I'd like to think the atmosphere is still there. So. <laughs> I wonder how the Fox brothers would feel about recording onto an iPad. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so, you know, obviously you, you could never do that with analog gear. So, right. You, it, what we're, but you're missing a lot of things for, that you would get from the analog gear. So sometimes it's like, well, let's see what I can use this for that I really wouldn't be able to do. So it might be yeah. digital, but now I've got like just, you know, I've got all this atmospheric ambient sound coming in that kind of makes up for things a little bit <laughs> yeah i mean you know you, you can make anything work right yeah uh, I, I just watch my I, I try to keep things very analog except for the fact that i'm using my computer record for years and i, I guess i'm finally finding a few benefits to uh basically being uh, mobility more than i guess the tech itself but just being able to do it anywhere uh making songs on the train <laughs> Nice. I think most of my songs these days actually start uh, being made on a train. So <laughs> it's quiet enough on on the train system. And, and, yeah. Uh, and uh, and I, I also there's the um with the oblique strategies Brian Eno sort of idea. So a lot of times my final track will not have anything I did on the train. Everything's been replaced at some point, but uh. But that's your jumping off spot. Exactly. So just finding a fun workflow is, is uh, you know, with what you have. <laughs> and, and that's, again, with Motown, they just had, uh, they call it a assembly line just because the workflow was, you know, perfected. Yeah, but they, they also had that workflow within their uh, respective um, ensembles, you know, like the piano players would get together and go, all right, we're going to approach this this way. And then the guitar players would go, well, if you play this part and I play this part and I play this part, because three guitar players, that's, you know, that's a, that's a lot. You're getting into Phil Spector territory, um, you know, doing the same thing with two drummers. They all get together and do their thing, and then it all comes in collectively. And yeah, yeah, the, the drum power thing I, I always found interesting. Because growing up, I was always at the Grateful Dead at Mickey Hart, so it was all about, like, polyrhythms, right? And then you went with Motown had two drummers. Oh, that was just to, you know, make it, like, punch. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, rarely were, there, there was never power drumming involved. 
Right, but know? just having two two guys doing jazz combined makes it, you know, yeah. kind of a different kind of punch. And never underestimate that power of that tambourine. No, uh, watching them in here, I was like, at first, I was like, what? They just gave him the tambourine? And uh, now I'm like, oh, okay. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, because he wasn't, he wasn't originally hired as a tambourinist or something. No, he was but, a vibraphonist, right? <laughs> but uh, uh, just watching him, I'm like, you know, I got, I think, uh, yeah, I got my tambourine down here. It's like a half one, right? I, I cannot, what he's doing? No way. I can't do that. <laughs> uh, you know, he perfected that keeping that 16th note feel underneath, but always right, right there with the snares, uh, you know, on the face of the tambourine. <clears throat> and it was just, you know, and then I, I liked how Prince actually took that concept and reversed it. He put the, if you listen to a lot of his records, he puts the snare on the kick drum which gives the kick drum a different quality about it. I'm thinking if I've... See, I, I, I said before, I don't know enough to hear. I'm like, have I actually done that? Because, um, again, the nice thing about digital is it's it's 90% there. If I want a Lindrum, it's going to cost like a thousand bucks to get a Lindrum. But I got this one on my iPad that's eh, pretty close. So. <laughs> I got a nice Vox amp here but on the ipad i can have something that's almost there and then just flip my finger and i'm on a fender or a marshall that's most of the way there so and that 10 percent is important especially with the analog synthesizers i, I want that extra 10 percent. I, I i can't settle with the digital synths in the end but <laughs> yeah i kick myself sometimes for some of the keyboards i've let go through my life <laughs> oh yeah i was you know, i, I almost kicking myself up the telecaster i got a i got a jazz master just keeps coming in and out of my life so <laughs> originally i got rid of it for a while and um then it came back and it was better when it came back and recently it's it's i, I sent it away again because i was using it too much <laughs> <laughs> yeah sometimes, I still own it. <laughs> sometimes it's hard to take something out of your hands yeah yeah i was just like because um because he, he, he had my weird British Stratocaster. I mean, it's not Fender. It's Burns, right? So, um, and that came back. It was like, I since he had it a few years, I was like, oh, it's age now. Now it plays really well. Because at first it didn't play so well. So, <laughs> Yeah, I have a friend of mine who's never let an instrument slip through his fingers in, you know, 60 years of playing. Um, he's, he has over 60 different guitars. Uh, and they, a lot of times they keep finding him, you know, the guitar will just like, he gave this one guitar up back in the early sixties, a guy brought it back to him. I think it was like, uh, one of the very first Les Pauls that were made and a guy brought it to him to have him, um, what do you call it? When you touch up the action and stuff, um, set it up. That a setup, yeah. <laughs> That's a complex phrase because uh, <laughs> he's he's good at setting up setting up guitars, and um, he's never given it back. <laughs> now you went, uh, now, you, if you get that Les Paul in your hands, you don't want you don't want to let go too quickly. <laughs> but, you know, uh, like one time I, I was doing a session and I needed uh, I wanted a sitar, 
but I would settle for the electric sitar. And I didn't want to use some, you know, uh, emulation or anything. So he went out and found a uh, floral guitar. And uh, he's like, yeah, I would have never bought that had you not needed it. Yeah. <laughs> and, my, you know, he uses it all the time now. No, my, uh, that, weirdly, my, my um, solution to that was to get a hollow body guitar, which is not a sitar at all, but whatever. <laughs> I guess I just want, again, I want some air moving around, I guess. Right. <laughs> um, I guess we should wrap up because we're, we're not Motown in anymore, and I, I actually have to go to work before too long. I always podcast before work. It's weird because <laughs> everyone's on the other side of the planet. <laughs> but uh, but you got you, you got your studio. You, I, I know you got the Amatones website. Can you tell folks a little bit about that? Um, yeah, I have two websites. There's buzzmodel.com, which is myself as a producer. Um, and then I have a Montone's Music, which is me more, that's more of my teaching website because I teach production and piano and uh, theory, composition, pretty much whatever. It was a catchy name, so I <laughs> never had trouble remembering that one. Yeah, yeah well, I get Amatones a lot. <laughs> Amatones, you know, I don't care as long as they contact me. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's Montone's.net. And do you, are, you, are you planning on releasing some music this year? Or is it, or are you more on a long-term project? Uh, it's, it's, I can't get any more long-term on this record since 2006. Um, I'm hoping that this, since the pandemic, I've spent a lot of time on this record. And I'm probably 80 to 80, somewhere between 80 and 90% done with recording. Um, so yes, I would like to get it out before the end of the year. Okay, well, ho hope that works out. <laughs> get it out before the end of the year. Uh, as for this podcast, it's oral hi at oh, oral hygiene at uh, Twitter, Facebook, all of that stuff. And if you're listening now, you probably know what podcast app to listen on. So. <laughs> Buzz, thanks for coming. And uh, yeah, you're just, uh, it's nice to scratch my gear talk itch. Hopefully, the listener's not too put off by that. <laughs> There's oh, a few people that like to hear it, right? <laughs> Finally, great to meet you and, you know, put a face and a voice to everything. Radio. And yeah, well, uh, yes, I'll have to, we have to get back to the wrecking crew at some point. <laughs> All right. Did you advance the film strip? Are you on the final page? Well done. By a long bye on a now lane, Smokey be shoots on through the dark gate. Farewell, the old line playing hands with fate. And he said, I'm bound to wheel, captive in market town. Rise again and wear my waiting crown. I'm so sorry, but I'll probably let.